The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 36 to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. And when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. Okay, we're in uh, our final couple verses of Numbers 33, Numbers 33, 50 through 56, and this is entitled, I Have Given You the Land to Possess. Now, before I uh, read the sermon verses, you guys are leaving this week, aren't you? Oh, so you'll be here next Sunday. Okay, then never mind. Good, it's good to know you'll be here. Yeah, I, I don't know why I was thinking that, but okay, Numbers 33... 50 through 56, starting in verse 50. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess." And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance. There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell." Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. In today's passage, the people have the surety that they are entering Canaan. Verse 50 makes that perfectly clear. The Lord says, when you have crossed the Jordan. So there is no need to wonder if it will happen. It will. However, no sooner does the Lord say this than he gives directions as to what should be done. That already seems a bit ominous. He has given them about seven jillion directions of things to do or not to do since they agreed to the covenant, and yet they have consistently failed to do or not do the things which they were told to not do or to do. <laughs> the very fact that they have failed thus far calls into question their future in Canaan. History is often the best gauge of future performance. Further, the Lord tells them exactly what the consequences for failure will be. Joseph Benson actually provides reasons for Israel to fail to do what they were supposed to do. He says, Those of them whom ye suffer to remain in the land through your cowardice, slothfulness, or friendship toward them shall be a great plague to you and bring sore calamities upon you. Each of those can be a strong enticement to failure to comply. We are protective of self at times, even to the point of cowardice. It takes great reliance on our cause, whatever it may be, to step forward and face risk even to the point of death. As humans, we can be slothful in one area or another. 
As groups of people, we can be industrious in one way and slothful in another. Often it isn't intentional. Rather, it can be cultural. In this way or that, we can slothfully fail to do what we should do. And friendship can be the greatest hindrance to doing what is right. That is seen in Scripture, and it is seen in our own lives. Few people have the moral grounding to go fully against any and all established friendships when it is the right thing to do. Our text verse comes from Zechariah chapter 14. It's verses 20 and 21. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. The Lord prophesied through Zechariah that a time was coming when Jerusalem would be the focus of the world's attention and that there would be no Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Why is that verse relevant to what we are looking at in our verses today? One thing is for sure, the prophecies of Zechariah 14 have never been fulfilled in human history, nor have many other prophecies been fulfilled which run throughout the Bible, a few of which we will see in our sermon today. Unless you are adamant in being wrong about biblical theology, you must admit that these prophecies are to be taken literally, and they are pointing not to the church, but to Israel. And unless you want to continue to be wrong by stating that the church has replaced Israel, you must admit that the reemergence of Israel in the modern world must have some prophetic significance, which also must be a part of what those verses are prophesying. What is to be taken as an axiom in theology is that one plus one will always equal two. Prophecies about Israel will be fulfilled by Israel. That much is certain. So let's stick to what is rational and look at things from that perspective and Let's get into the sermon. What is presented here is another marvelous part of his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got here a couple thoughts for you. The first is an introductory thought. This short passage is a transitional one between the record of the wilderness wanderings which preceded it and the preparation for the division of the land which will be seen in the coming chapter. There, the boundaries of the land will be stated, and the names of the leaders who are appointed to divide the land will be named. Everything is being prepared for Israel in advance of their entry into the land, but it is being done by the Lord through Moses. One can see a glimpse of salvation for the believer in how this is laid out, using Moses, the man, as typical of the law itself. To understand this, we must first review what the purpose of the law was. Only then can we understand the symbolism of what is being relayed to us by the Lord, now speaking to Moses about the inheritance. The Lord gave the law to Israel. The law was intended to act as a means of bringing life to man. That was stated explicitly in Leviticus chapter 18, where it says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which, if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Life could come through the law. However, the Lord said to them that this would only come about if one did the things found in his statutes and judgments. As it says, if a man does. As we saw when we were in that passage, in that particular verse from Leviticus, it was given based on the holiness of God. The central theme of the book of Leviticus, and thus the central theme of the giving of the law itself, is found in Leviticus 11, verse 44. There it said, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It is a theme that Peter picked up on for those in Christ in 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. There he quoted Leviticus exactly. Holiness is the expectation of man in the presence of God. However, how is that obtained? For those under law, the answer is found in doing the things of the law, as explained in Leviticus 18, verse 5. That verse contains the main logical reason for man to be holy and the promised outcome for him walking in holiness. In doing so, he would live. Leviticus 18.5 is such an important verse that it is incorporated into the thought of Genesis 2 and 3, and it is substantially repeated several times both in the Old and New Testaments. In Genesis 2, the Lord gave a command which promised death 
if disobeyed. The implication then is that life would result through obedience. Here's what it said. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. However, in Genesis 3, because man disobeyed the law given by the Lord, access to the tree of life by which man could live forever was denied and death entered into the world. But in Leviticus, the Lord made a promise that through obedience to his law, the man shall live. As we saw at that time, many scholars simply passed this off as meaning living happily or possessing a higher life or something like that. But that was not at all what the Lord was saying. Rather, it is a promise that if a man keeps the requirements of the law, he will live and not die. Consequently, and on the flip side, if one does not keep the requirements of the law, he will die and not live. The Lord dwelt among Israel. Access to him at the tabernacle and later at the temple was restricted because of man's sin nature. But it was also restricted because of the law itself. Without meeting the law's precepts, there could be no access. However, in fulfillment of the law, access would naturally be granted once again. It could not be otherwise. The law was given to give life. If life is promised, then it must be granted. If one doesn't die, then he continues to live. If he lives forever, then he has eternal life. This is the implication of the words of Leviticus 18 verse 5. And that thought, as we saw then, was solidified by the use of a definite article in front of the word man. Leviticus 18.5 doesn't say if a man does. It says if the man does. During that sermon, I asked you to correct your Bible so that you would see this on your next journey through Leviticus. Thus, that verse looks forward to Christ, the man who, in fact, did keep the ordinances and judgments of Jehovah, and thus he is the possessor of eternal life. This is exactingly explained in the book of Romans and elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Christ fulfilled the law, and thus the law is fulfilled in him. In him, life is granted. Leviticus 18 verse 5 is so important that Nehemiah 9 verse 29 refers to it after the people's return from punishment of exile. Ezekiel 20 then repeats it three times to show that failure to keep the Lord's law is what resulted in that punishment. In the New Testament, Paul then cites this same verse twice in Romans 10 verse 5 and Galatians 3 verse 12 to show that Christ, who fulfilled the law of Moses, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in him. It is faith in his completion of the law which grants eternal life. He did the work. We must do the believing. This then explains the 38 years of wilderness wandering. That was given, as was clearly seen in the earlier number sermons, as a type or a picture of the punishment of Israel rejecting Christ Jesus. Israel failed to do the believing, and they were punished for it, exactly as the Lord, through the law, said time and again would occur. And so what does that have to do with the Lord now instructing Moses on what lies ahead in this passage? It is, as I said a few minutes ago, a transitional passage between the stops of Israel since leaving Sinai and the appointment of the boundaries of the land and the naming of the people who would divide it. That's next week. Israel was redeemed. Israel received the law. The law pointed to Christ and Israel rejected Christ. Because of that, they went into the punishment of exile. Now, they are on the border of the land of inheritance with Moses, being instructed on the layout and division of it. It is Moses, representative of the law, who is given the instruction, and yet Moses will not enter into the inheritance. The law has no part in the inheritance except for the completion of it. The man who does the things of the law will live. Christ accomplished the things of the law, and he lives. Thus, he is the embodiment of the law. Moses, standing representative of the law, will die outside of the inheritance in the land of Moab. Christ did not die in heaven. Rather, he died outside of that inheritance in this fallen world. When he died, the law died with him because it is fulfilled in him. Further, his death was not for his sin under the law, but ours. Therefore, in him is life, not death. Our sin for transgressions of the law dies in him. 
and life is granted to us in the exchange. Does everybody see that? If you're in Christ, you have the life promised in Leviticus 18, verse 5. For Israel of today, the inheritance is yet ahead, but this is what this is picturing. They can either die under the law, represented by Moses dying outside of Canaan, or they can die in Christ, represented by the entering of the promise. This is what this short transitional set of verses is anticipating. An inheritance awaits. However, the typology ends there with that thought in some respects. Once Israel actually crosses the Jordan, they will again be used to show countless examples of the spiritual battle which is being waged, the futility of life under the law, the hope of Messiah to come, and so on. Each passage of a section builds up to a completion, and then the stories begin again, just as we had seen in the many, many stories of Genesis. For now, the main lesson for us to remember, and it is one which has been repeated uncounted times already, is that we cannot obtain the inheritance through the law. Only Christ could do that. For us, the inheritance is obtained through the man who did the things of the law. If we step back from that premise and to the law itself, we only bring ourselves condemnation because, as we have seen, the man who does the things of the law will live by them. And we cannot do the things of the law. What is it that will bring me life? What thing must I do to be right with my God? What will end this enmity and strife? How shall I conduct my affairs on this path that I trod? Shall I stand before God and boast in what I have done? Shall I rely on my deeds accomplished under the law? Shall I reject the perfection of his son? Am I able to stand on my own without spot or flaw? Not on a bet would I determine to do. A single misdeed and I would be done in. I will trust in the work of the Lord, holy and true. Only through him will I be freed from the penalty of sin. Thanks be to God for Christ Jesus, my Lord. Only in him will I to the judgment seat step forward. Our second thought today, instructions concerning the conquest. It's verses 50 through 56. Verse 50, now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, the picture is the same as has been seen several times already, even just last week as we closed out that passage. Moses represents the law of whom Christ is the embodiment. Moab means from father. It is Christ who is from father and who has been given the law as his responsibility to live out. The Jordan, or descender, is typical of Christ who descended to accomplish his work in order to bring the people into their inheritance. Do you remember the video, if you were here earlier, where were Sergio and Rhoda? They were up on Mount Hermon. They were way up there, and the Jordan descends all the way down to the lowest spot on earth. It's a picture of Christ coming from heaven and going all the way down to the very pit itself. That's what the Jordan is picturing, and it is a picture of Christ. Jericho, or place of fragrance, is typical of that step into a return to paradise because of Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? These are the types which the narrative anticipates in Christ and in his work. There is also the reality of the passage which originally took place. Israel is, within a very short span, going to enter into Canaan. Once over the Jordan, that land must be subdued. Those things which are unholy must be destroyed. The land must be divided among the tribes and the people must be made aware of the penalties for not living holy in the presence of the holy God, who is the Lord. A brief review of these principles will now be laid out and then each will be further explained, detailed, or revealed in the short span of a few weeks before Moses dies. For now, it is interesting to note that the general sentiment found in this verse is repeated again in Numbers 35 verse 1. And it is also used to close out the book of Numbers at the very end of chapter 36. In other words, the substance of Numbers 3350 through Numbers 3613 forms its own unique addition 
to the body of law found in the books of Moses and which are a part of the law itself. It is that which is spoken of at their very last stopping point before entering the inheritance. And yet, it is separate from the book of Deuteronomy, which will also be put forth in this same spot. This final section of Numbers is then subdivided into Numbers 33:50 through the end of chapter 34, and then from Numbers 35:1 until the end of chapter 36, which closes out the book. Verse 51, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, this is what the Lord is said to have spoken to Moses in the previous verse. He is to speak to the children of Israel. This is not merely something for the priests, but rather for all of the people. As Israel is a group of people who are descended from a man, Jacob, who is Israel, the words are spoken to all of his sons, meaning the 12 tribes, and all who descend from them. The expectation is that what will be directed will be accomplished within a certain amount of time. But if it fails to be accomplished, that which is left undone will result in problems, not specifically for this generation, but for all generations to follow. Thus, the idea of speaking to the children of Israel here means the people now and at all times ahead. A matter left unattended to can be and must be corrected later, or it will continue to be a festering wound for the people. This will be seen in the words to Moses as the Lord continues. And this is a good lesson for us even now. The Lord has spoken to the world through his word. He has also spoken to his church directly through his word. A matter which is left unattended to or which is a violation of his word is guaranteed to result in a wound. The only way to heal such a wound is to correct what caused it and what has caused it to continue and grow, which was a violation of his word in the first place. Faulty doctrine is such a violation. The church will suffer from it, just as Israel suffered from violations of the law of the Lord. The only courses that will result are continued expansions of the trouble if left uncorrected, eventually leading to rejection by the Lord, or a correction of the problem in returning to what is expected by him. This is why Moses is told to speak to the children of Israel. Everyone is to be aware because the matter will eventually affect all. And the instructions are for, verse 51 continues, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan. At other times, the Lord spoke in general terms concerning entry into the land, such as in Leviticus 23, verse 10, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Now the word from the Lord is that this general time spoken of before has arrived. With the simple crossing of the Jordan, the hope of the people will be realized. The imagery of Christ for the Christian is obvious. When you cross over Christ, meaning passing through what he has done for us, the journey home is complete. It may not be realized actually, but it is a done deal. For Israel, Canaan is the anticipated inheritance. It is also the anticipated place of rest. Once they have entered the land, the people must act in accord with the word or the inheritance will be marred and the rest will not be achieved. The question is then, how will this be achieved? The beginning to that answer is verse 52. Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. The verb for drive out here is yarash. It speaks of occupying as a possession. In essence, you shall dispossess them from the land before you. The meaning of this is explained more fully in Deuteronomy. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them, and here it is, and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. To drive out all the inhabitants, then, means nothing less than destroying them. If they simply drove them out physically, they could regroup and attempt to take the land they had been disinherited from. Or they could make an alliance with another nation and come back and destroy Israel. The remedy was not driving out physically, but driving out through extermination. Further, they were to, verse 52 continues, destroy all their engraved stones. 
Here is a word which has only been seen once so far, masquit or imagination. It is derived from sekvi, which speaks of the mind, and thus it refers to the imaginations of the mind in forming an image. The New King James Version wrongly says engraved stones. Here it is a single word signifying imagery of any type, not merely a stone. Because this is dealing with the mind, it may be that it is some type of image, such as a talisman or that which is intended to influence a person, as in divination or something like that. Using this same word in Leviticus 26 verse 1, it said, You shall not make idols for yourselves. Neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone, that word there, in your land, to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. As can be seen, it is some type of imagery which could be bowed down to in idolatry. Therefore, any such imagery was to be destroyed. To have such images could, and it would, inevitably lead the people to idolatry and or sorcery. Further, they were to, verse, think of knocking on wood. We take it as something simple and it doesn't really mean anything, but it leads to a type of idolatry. You want to keep those things away from your life. Verse 52 continues, destroy all their molded images. And all images there molten you shall destroy. Here the word selem speaks of an image of something else. The second word, maseka, speaks of that which is poured out, and thus it signifies something molten. It is something cast into a shape which represents something else, like a Buddha or a lion or a whatever. These were to be destroyed. Further, verse 52 continues, and demolish all their high places. Ve'et kal bamotam tashmidu, and all high places desolate. The word is shamad, which comes from a root signifying desolation. Thus, it means to destroy until erased. The high places refer to places of worship, which are on hilltops, mountains, and the like. The idea is that a person goes up in order to bring himself closer to his God. This is contrary to the concept found in Scripture, where God condescends to descend to his people. To elevate oneself through going to a high place signifies several things. First, it means that a person feels worthy enough to get closer to his God. Therefore, pride is involved. Secondly, it means that the person has labored on his own to ascend to his God. Thus, personal works are involved in his communing with his deity. That obviously bears undertones of pride as well. Thirdly, it denies the omnipresence of God because if God is truly God, he is everywhere. The symbolism of God descending or coming down to man is that of meeting man on his level. But it doesn't actually mean that God is not omnipresent. But to go to a high place would give the mind that impression. This offensive practice was never eradicated by Israel, even during the administration of Samuel, who is said to have gone to the high places to sacrifice, nor at the time of Solomon, who is said to have gone to the high place that was in Gibeon to meet with the Lord. However, at times, kings of Judah, such as Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and Josiah, were noted as having obediently followed the Lord and destroyed these idolatrous places of worship. Unfortunately, as soon as a new king reigned, the people would go right back to their practices, sometimes even being spurred on by the king himself. In fact, of King Ahaz, it says this, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Later, similar words were spoken concerning Manasseh. So wicked had he become that there was finally no remedy. Even after the good king Josiah brought great reforms to the land, the Lord's anger was too hot, and he spoke forth his words of doom. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. I will stop right now and I'll say that there are churches in the United States of America and around the world that are doing exactly what Manasseh did openly in churches and condoning things that are condoned by this king. I could go through a litany of them in churches all over Sarasota. 
And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city, which I have chosen and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. The law was agreed to. The people were warned. And eventually there was no remedy left. Think of the lampstand being taken away from the church in Revelation 2 and 3. That's the same principle. It's the same principle, folks. Though Israel always revered Moses as their great lawgiver, they failed to revere the Lord who is the true source of that law. And they failed to heed the words of the law which came through Moses. That sounds like the churches too, doesn't it? They all have a Bible on the pulpit. They revere the Bible, but they don't revere anything else beyond that. It's just a symbol. Oh, we love the Bible. They don't even know what it says. They never open it. They never study it. They never read it. And they don't care about the Lord who gave it. Indeed, the fickled state of Israel is mirrored in our own hearts, lives, and churches as well. For many, there will not be a happy end to their walk, all because of idolatry of the heart and of the mind, and because of a failing to simply put self aside and trust in Jesus. For now, the Lord continues his instruction to Moses. Verse 53, you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. The same word yarash that was used in verse 52 is used twice in this verse. There is a dispossessing of the inhabitants, and then there is the possessing by Israel. And this possession is based on an inheritance. Verse 54, and you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger, you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller, you shall give a smaller inheritance, that there everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. These words here are similar to words found in Numbers 26. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, To these the land shall be divided as an inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a larger inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who are numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot. They shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. What is obvious is that this inheritance is not by size of tribe. In Numbers 26, which I just read you, the New King James Version inserted the word tribe twice by saying to a larger tribe you shall give and to a small tribe you shall give. That is, as we saw then, wholly incorrect. As it says in this verse now, and you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. It is not by tribe, but by family that the size of the inheritance is made. The tribe's inheritance is not based on its given size, but rather it is based upon the lot. As it says, everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. The Lord, through the lot, determined where each tribe would be situated. The division of that tribal land was then to be divided by size according to the family within the tribe. This was the whole purpose of the second census, which was conducted based on family. The importance of this was that by the Lord choosing where the tribes would be located, the prophecies which had already been spoken concerning Judah and other tribes would be fulfilled. What happened within the tribal land was of less consequence than the actual location of the tribal land itself. Regardless of location, though, the importance of clearing the land and the reason for it is again stated and expanded on. Verse 55, but if you do not drive out the inheritance of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. This is a solemn and dire warning to Israel. It is not a maybe, nor is it something tolerable, but which could be ignored. Rather, it is a surety, and it is something that would constantly afflict and torment Israel if they failed to heed. The consequences for not dispossessing all of the people of the land are threefold. The first is that they would be le sikem be'enechem, or something which affects the eyes. The word here is sek, and it is only found here in the Bible. It is believed to come from the word sakak, meaning a covering. How that can be then translated as a thorn, as most translations say, is very difficult to justify. The New King James Version steps out and says irritants. Good job. That probably comes closer to the meaning. 
It probably signifies something that causes the eyes to be covered over, like getting pepper sprayed. And so it is a constant irritant. But even more, it would keep the people from seeing what is right and what is harmful. Thus, they would be people without any discernment at all. The second consequence is that they would be and thorns in your sides. This word sanin is more certain. It is a thorn. It is only seen twice. The second time, interestingly, it is speaking of being a thorn in the eyes, showing that the first word is something other than a thorn. Here's what it says in Joshua 23. But they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides, and there it is, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. The idea here is that no matter which way one turns, there will be the discomfort of sharp pains. Thus, there would be the constant spiritual needling of these people, which would rob Israel of her ability to rightly pursue the Lord. The third consequence is that they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. It is the same word which was used concerning the treatment of the Midianites when they troubled Israel, pulling them into physical and spiritual harlotry. The harassing spoken of here would be both literal and spiritual. The word gives the sense of besieging. Thus, Israel would be besieged by the very people they were to dispossess. Of these three consequences, Jameson Fawcett Brown wrongly states the following. This earnest admonition given to the Israelites in their peculiar circumstances conveys a salutary lesson to us to allow no lurking habits of sin to remain in us. That spiritual enemy must be eradicated from our nature. Otherwise, it will be ruinous to our present peace and future salvation. They were perfect up until the last three words. This is a poor analogy. They are equating collective Israel to us individually, which is not incorrect, but then they make the error of saying that what happened to Israel can be equated to a ruining of our own salvation. People may argue over whether a believer can lose his salvation or not, which he cannot, but the analogy is still faulty because God has never forsaken Israel. If Israel is to be equated to the individual in Christ, which is acceptable and correct, the obvious conclusion is that the individual cannot lose his salvation. Quite the opposite of their analysis. What this can be equated to is the state of individual churches which fail to deal with sin in their congregations. Eventually, judgment will come, and the church will have its lampstand removed. For the church, though, it's a little scary because they don't even know it's removed. Israel knew when they were exiled from the land. They knew they had done wrong, and they knew that they were under punishment. Okay? The church doesn't. We're here, and we're thinking all is happy and fine, and someday the trumpet's going to blow. The Lord is going to shout, and there are going to be people gone, and there are going to be a lot of people sitting there going, I didn't know, because they never took the time to pick up this precious gift of God and simply read it. Regardless of that, for Israel, the words have been spoken, and they will assuredly come to pass. Now, I'd like everybody to stop. Don't look at your sheets. I have a question for you where you may earn your own Maserati. Okay, can anybody without looking remember what the text verse for this sermon was? I'm not asking you to quote it. What book of the Bible? <sighs> Zechariah. Zechariah 14, 20 through 21. Okay, Zechariah was a post-exilic prophet. That means after the exile. What that verse implied is that the Canaanites remained in the land throughout the years of Israel prior to their exile. And they continued on in the land after the return of the exiles. This is actually even seen in Matthew 15, 22, where he notes a woman of Canaan. Remember that text verse said there will be no Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts? There you go. There was a woman of Canaan being in the region of Tyre and Sidon. So there were Canaanites in the land. The Canaanites picturing those who bring others into subjection and thus false teachers who subject their people to false doctrines. What is seen in the inhabitants of Canaan troubling Israel in a physical way is directly equated to how false teachers brought Israel and indeed many in the church into spiritual bondage. The promise of Zechariah 14 is that someday this will no longer be the case in Israel. They will be subject to the Lord who is Jesus the Messiah. The sad part for Israel here is that they had already seen the truth of what the Lord promises will occur 
when they were joined to Baal of Peor. Remember, they did it already. They've already been punished for it. And when they failed to eradicate the Midianites as expected and Moses got mad at them, they've already got a precedent. Obey the Lord. Obey his word. They were given advanced lessons in the consequences of their actions, and they failed to pay heed and learn. In their failing, the Lord finishes with this solemn promise. Verse 56 finishes us up today and the chapter. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And the chapter ends with the introduction of a new word, dama, or to be like. The Lord told Israel to dispossess the inhabitants of the land. This can then only be taken in one way, in failing to do so, and in being overcome by those they should have overcome, the Lord would make a comparative exchange and instead, dama, dispossess Israel. And what this means without holding back for the sake of political correctness is that Israel's two exiles and the punishment that they received before and during those exiles were wholly self-inflicted wounds. I've had people actually say, I'm never listening to Charlie Garrett again because he said it was Israel's fault that they were punished. It, I didn't say it. I just repeated what the Lord says in Leviticus chapter 26 in detail. Every single thing that happened is already detailed in advance. And guess what? We're coming up to the book of Deuteronomy, and it's repeated in Deuteronomy. If anybody can tell me the chapter, I'll give you the Maserati. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and 8, 28. Very good. You get a half a more. I'll give you the front tire. Yeah, you're very close. That's right. But he's going to repeat it. In Leviticus 26, it says, I will do this. It was in the first person. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, the Lord will do this. It's in the second person. He says he's going to do what he said he said claimed he would do. Okay? What occurred to them could have been avoided, but they were selected to be the example for the world to see. The law can save no one through his own futile attempts to live by it. Rather, the law can save anyone when his trust is in Christ who fulfilled it in his stead. Israel was told to cross over the Jordan and to do certain things in order to be secure and free from harm, but they missed the typology of what the Jordan or the descender anticipated. When they crossed over, it was in anticipation of entering into their inherited rest. However, the book of Hebrews, which quotes the 95th Psalm, says of the wilderness generation, they shall not enter my rest. Joshua's way back here, the psalmist is here, and Hebrews is way back here. Everybody see the timeline? That psalmist then says later in the psalm, today if you will hear his voice, understanding that the psalmist lived long after Israel crossed the Jordan, the author of Hebrews then says, Hebrews 4, 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day, meaning the psalmist. The only logical conclusion, which is explained fully by the author of Hebrews, is that Joshua did not bring them into their rest, and that he was only used as a type of Christ to come. When Israel rejected Christ, they made the same pattern as when Israel rejected the Lord after leaving Sinai when they refused to enter Canaan. The point of the author's words, and indeed the point of Israel's existence as the people called by God, is to demonstrate without a doubt that the law cannot save anyone apart from Christ, and that all need Christ, even Israel, collectively and individually. And how can we know that this is correct? All we need to do is look at what the typology has brought us to. Israel was in the wilderness under punishment, wandering for the past 40 years prior to crossing the Jordan. That clearly pointed to Israel's punishment and exile for the past 2,000 years. At the end of the exile, there will be a great battle which will then usher in the time of the millennium, a time when Christ will physically rule from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. But what does it say about the people of the land at that time? Not that Israel is to dispossess them. They're not to exterminate them. Rather, Ezekiel prophesies about it in Ezekiel 47. Thus you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves. Here it is. And for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you, they shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that in whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. 
The time of rest will be realized for this long wayward people, and that rest will include any who are there to dwell with them in the land. Both Jew and Gentile, and man, you ask a Jew about that today, and they will say, no way, Jose. <laughs> but they have been given and will continue to be offered the same salvation. Someday Israel will see this and reach out for what they have missed for so very long. God's promised rest is what Israel anticipated. It is what they failed to obtain, and it is what is now realized in Christ Jesus. Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, verse 3, For we who have believed, that means you, if you believe in Jesus, have entered that rest. Or it says in the New King James Version, do enter that rest. Have you called on Jesus? Have you entered into the promised rest of God? If not, today would be a great day for you to do so. The fulfillment of the ages, as we saw during the Prophecy Update today, is quickly coming. And the time for the world, as it is now being run, is rapidly coming to a close. Be sure that you are ready for the day when things change and God comes for his people and then judges the world in righteousness. If you don't know Jesus, you're going to be a part of that. We're all going to be a part of that judgment, some for salvation and some for condemnation. We're going to have the rapture and we're all going to stand at the beam of seat of Christ that are saved and we're going to be judged. The good things will be, you know, uh, credited and the bad things will be burnt up, wood, hay, and stubble. That's what's going to happen to us. But there is a judgment coming upon the world at large as well. And we all have to face it. I would pray that if somebody's listening to this sermon today, maybe clicked on YouTube or maybe later will click on YouTube and find out that they need Jesus, that they just simply ask for Jesus. You have to believe that he died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. And then you appropriate that, right? Just appropriate it. Call on Jesus and be saved. It's that simple. And then you can argue with the other Christians all you want about bad doctrine. Okay? Do that later. Worry about the simple, basic salvation now. Get that out of the way and then learn proper doctrine. No, you cannot lose your salvation. No, the church has not replaced Israel. No, we're not predestined or, I'm sorry, uh, uh, regenerated in order to believe. We believe because we have free will. We can argue all that later. Get right with Jesus first. Our closing verse is from Ezekiel 28. It is verse 24. And there shall no longer be a pricking briar or a painful thorn for the house of Israel from among all who are around them, who despise them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord God. Now that was said before Ezekiel 47, which I read you a minute ago, but it says there's not going to be any thorns and briars. Why? Because most people are going to be exterminated because of the tribulation period. And those that aren't are all going to be welcome because they're all going to be saved believers in Christ because they're going to see Christ return and they are going to believe. And so there won't be any breaking briars. That's how that's fulfilled is by what it says in Ezekiel 47. The Bible just keeps, you know, it just confirms itself time and time and time again. It's a marvelous book if you just pick it up and read it. Next week, Numbers 34, 1 through 29. I know that's a lot of verses. It'll go quickly. Is it the same as heaven? No, not a chance. It's entitled The Earthly Inheritance. That'll be your 67th number sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you were lost in a desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there and he's carefully leading you to the land of promise. We've been seeing it all in these sermons and we're seeing it in our own lives as well. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? And when I say that every week, I'm not telling you you're not gonna be pain-free. I'm not telling you that you're going to get a Maserati. None of you did today. One of you got a wheel. I'm not going to tell you that you can claim yourself into prosperity or win the lottery. I will never tell you those things. When I say the Lord is leading you, he's leading you to a place where those things are possible. I'm not talking about the lottery. I'm talking about being free from pain, no more crying, no more tears, and all the wonderful joy that is ahead. That's not going to happen in this life for many of us. So accept your state. If you can get it corrected, great. If you can't, live with it, praising the Lord all the way through it, because your praising of him shows that you have faith in him, and guess what? It will be rewarded at the Bema Seat of Christ. One plus one always equals two in theology. I got a poem, very short one, and we'll be done. I have given you the land to possess. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you've crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, as I am now relaying, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places too. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, 
for I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families, as to you I now address. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance, so shall it be. There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers as directed by me. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides. It is true. And they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So to you, I now tell. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful lesson today. Just six short verses, wonderful, wonderful words. Maybe it was seven. Anyway, it's wonderful words that you've given us to think on, to contemplate, and to understand that you have a plan, that it is being worked out, and through that plan, there is disobedience. There are people that are turning their backs on you, but if they have called on you at one time, they will never lose what they have been given. They will only lose the rewards that they could have had serving you faithfully. And so, Lord, please let us be wise. Let us be discerning. Let us use this time wisely, redeeming the time so that when we come to you, stand there before you, that we will be met with a pleasing smile and a well done. May that be so. And Lord, you know the people that we prayed for earlier in the service. And Lord, we certainly pray for them now, praying that you will be with them through their afflictions and we will Thank you for the praises that they've sent forth to you. May you hear those and be pleased in them, Lord. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' exceptionally beautiful name. Amen.